I think in the organizational or corporate world, I think there are a few real giveaways. The first is reorganization. I, I, use, I spent 12 or 13 years in the business world. I think I survived four, maybe it was five reorganizations and not a single one of them worked. And generally speaking, it's because the customer doesn't care how you're organized. Doesn't matter. You could organize vertically in, in functional silos, right. horizontally by value streams, you could have a matrix organization. They all have pros, they all have cons. But if you go to reorganization without understanding what the problems are, that's usually a sign that you are going down the wrong road. You've jumped to a conclusion. The second is a- Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutia and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it's RJ Singh from the Ultra Habits Podcast and we are introducing our next wonderful guest, Daniel Markovitz from Markovitz Consulting out of the US. He has offices in New York and San Francisco and he's a major contributor to the Harvard Business Review where I've read numerous uh, articles that he's written over the years on process optimization. He's a lean guy, right? So he's all about creating efficiencies within organizations. Now the interesting thing here is that I take a lot of his material and implement it into my life. Now, whilst I might not be the most process driven person at work, I find his material is quite relevant as to how I can optimize and get the most out of my day. So he's recently released another book called The Conclusion Trap, which is quite short and punchy, where he introduces a framework that helps people make decisions that aren't marred by their cognitive biases or assumptions and really about maximization of our decision making. And I found it quite helpful across the board in business as well as my life. And I wanted the opportunity to get him on the show. So again, folks, really hope you enjoy my time with Daniel. Leave us reviews, leave us your feedback. All the best, have a fantastic week. Go out there and kick some ass. Peace. Ultra long stuff. Well, you, you know what I find to be the challenge, Dan, is the, the stuff around the training. Like for instance, let me give you this week. I'm, I'm building up to a race, a really difficult race in April. I get sick on Monday. The kids get sick. My wife is sick. We've got a, a nine month old and I'm, I'm stressed out. I'm like, okay, how am I going to get my K's in this week? Right. And I'm like, I'm thinking maybe I should go run even though I'm still sick and everyone's shattered at home. I, so I guess what I'm saying is I find the living life piece the most difficult when you're training for an ultra. And I think for, you know, I go on Instagram sometimes and I see these young professional runners that do double sessions and they're sleeping during the day. And I'm like, wow, come on. My right? old business partner, my old business partner and dear friend uh, used to be, used to compete in triathlon. He was not good enough to be sponsored or anything, but he was very serious about full Ironman distance. And he said, you know, it's a full-time job. You're doing two workouts every single day. And this is, of course, he was in his late, mid to late twenties. So no, no kids, no wife, no family. And he could spend all of his time doing this and then do some coaching and, and a whole bunch of sleeping. And I just cannot fathom to your point. I mean, if you've got anything outside of, <laughs> outside of training, how you fit it in is miraculous. And part of why I've actually come into your work is 
I'm actually not a, a process driven person. I'm completely intuitive, but because I'm a bit abstract and all over the place, I don't necessarily know what's the priority. Everything's important. I, I, I kind of stretch myself thin across all areas of my life. And what I've found is that actually process driven methodologies and, and even practices of lean are highly applicable to my life. I'm no way in terms of my career, I'm a sales guy. So I'm like, I'm as kind of farthest away from the principles from application to my work. But what I find is that the stuff that you have around productivity is totally applicable to how I live my life. Yep. Yep. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. It makes total sense. Uh, because the truth is the principles of lean are, are, are applicable to anything. And it makes complete sense that it works for your life too, because there you are, you're dealing with the finite resources that sometimes get even more finite, like when the family is sick. And you have to figure out how to produce the same number of widgets. In your case, the widgets is, is, is K's that you're training, but it's still widgets, whether it's a car or K's or whatever it is. And so that forces you, if you are reflective um, and objective, it forces you to figure out how to do it differently, how to do it better, and then start to apply those principles to say, hey, I could do this. I could do all this other stuff that's non-value added faster or eradicated completely. And, and yeah, because what I find with the, the way I think is my mind will immediately view everything as equally as important. And so what ends up happening is I attack 50 different things. Cause whilst I do the ultra running, I'm head of growth in a company that I'm a shareholder in. So there's a lot of responsibility there. And when I'm running 20 Ks in the morning, how does that then interact with my level of productivity at yeah. work? So uh, look, just to dovetail directly into this whole piece, uh, in one of the conversations that you had, you talked about this being the cognitive gym. I love it. Absolutely love it. Great. I'm glad that resonated with you. So what I'd like to ask you is, I know that you've got a lot of material in, in, in respect to this, this subject and related subject. What actually drove you to write this particular book. And thank you for keeping it so short and pointed. <laughs> that was actually obviously intentional. I've writ wrote, written two books that were much longer and I thought, you know, it would be fun to experiment with a book that's shorter, that is, uh, that people can read in an hour, an hour and a half or whatever it happens to be. Just because uh, so many books, you see so many people with books that are, you know, doorstops like this that I'll get to it later, but I don't have any time right now and so on. Um, okay, so what led me to do this? Well, I was, um, that will end up being, I suppose, the story, that, that story that I told you about the guy with the iPhone app. It was a friend of mine who runs that company and I was at a conference and he was telling this story and I thought, oh my God, I've lived through this, not with an iPhone, but in my case, reorganizations over and over again. And I'm thinking, this is just insane. People just don't, they just don't stop to think. They just jump to a solution or to a conclusion. And there are so many people who get hurt by it. How can we, is there anything I can do to help prevent 
people from making those stupid decisions. And I'm always careful to say, this is not about making decisions that turn out badly. It's about making bad decisions because some decisions always turn out badly because we don't have, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know. You're going to make a decision that was well-considered, well-founded, well-deliberated, and you missed it. That's life. Mm. But it's the stupid stuff that we can totally avoid that I want to see, I want to see people put out of their misery from that kind of thing or help them avoid the misery of that sort of problem. Yeah, for sure. So, so Dan, what's the four-step process that you've come up with? Can you unpack that for our audience? Yeah. So the four steps that, as I see it, are first going and seeing. What I mean by that, of course, is that the, we too often rely upon data. We rely upon reports, we rely upon spreadsheets, we rely upon hearsay. Someone says, this is what's going on. Or we see a report that says sales are down or profits are down or turnover is up or whatever it happens to be. Turnover in this case, it means employee turnover, not what you would call turnover, which is- Revenue. <laughs> Revenue. <laughs> exactly. right. so, so what, and what happens is that we don't often actually see what's going on. And so we end up with this anemic, two-dimensional cartoonish version or view of the world. We don't have a full, full color 3D understanding of what's happening. And as I like to say, if you watch any police procedural show on television, what's the first thing the detectives do? They get in the car and they drive to the crime scene because it's not enough to know that a bank was robbed. They need to see the bullet casings. They need to see the camera footage. They need to see what people could see things. They would need to see where the car might've been parked. They need to look for tire tracks. They need to get a holistic picture. And to me, that gives you a real understanding of what's going on. If we move away from the TV procedural, um, a perfect example of this is, um, uh, of, what, of what not to do is something that a friend of mine experienced. He was working at a Fortune 50 uh, financial services company in New York City. And the big muckety-mucks, the people at the top of the food chain, every quarter would go visit the far-flung outposts, the low labor cost places where customer service was being done. Could be India, could be the countryside in the United States, uh, backwaters of Australia for all I know. And they would fly in and they would get a power, they'd sit in a conference room, they had a PowerPoint presentation and they'd get a whole bunch of numbers and then they'd fly back home on the company jet and make sure they can be back in New York by dinner. That is not a real understanding of what's happening. A real understanding, a really going and seeing in this case would be taking a whole bunch of phone calls from customers. Mm. Would be sitting in that customer service center and listening to how people actually talk to customers. It's actually going to the, to the warehouse where people are picking, packing and shipping boxes and seeing that they have to bend over, over and over and over again, or that they never have enough tape to close the boxes. So going and seeing gives you a real understanding of what's happening in a way that statistics, numbers, reports, hearsay, can't do for you. I would imagine that would be super good for culture too, right? Like where, you know, customer service sees the exec team sitting down and actually giving a shit about what a day in the life looks like for them. The other point on that was something you brought up in a different conversation, which I found super interesting was how you talked about a lot of firms are outsourcing that piece. Now, you know, to, to, to companies like EDO, and I'm sure there's a million other companies now that have followed suit because they do certification. So do you view that as something that an outsourced firm 
could actually do better? Like, do they really have frameworks that would enable them to unpack more than me and the executive team that understand my industry, we understand the landscape? That is an, a great question. And the answer to that is yes and no. And what I mean by that is that having an outside firm can be very helpful because they know what to look for. It's like you're a runner, right? So you could imagine a coach would know what to look for if, if he or she were coaching you. Be looking, hey, I want to see your, what's your heart rate when you wake up? Yeah. What's your body weight been doing for a while? What's your heart rate? At what point are you at your lactate threshold? And let's track that. That's something that someone who doesn't know about running wouldn't know to look for or to ask about. So you have IDEO, you have McKinsey as a lean practice. I mean, I do this sort of thing as well as a consultant. So we can help point, the, point in the direction, but it's critical for the leadership to actually be there and do the same thing. And you said it earlier, you can imagine the, the, what it does for culture and morale when the, when the CEO or the CFO actually sits in the call, call center or works in the warehouse for a couple of hours. And they don't have to be there all day, every day. Everyone knows that the CFO has a job that is, it doesn't involve picking, packing and shipping orders or taking customer returns in the warranty center. Of course not. But to, to walk a mile or a kilometer or a half a kilometer or even 400 meters in someone else's shoes goes such a long way towards showing that you care. And it gives you such a powerful ability to understand what's really happening. Yeah. So the, the second step is framing the problem correctly. Now, this, I think, is very critical and complex due to the subjective nature of humans, right? So let's talk a little bit more about this step. So framing is one of my favorite parts of this model because I think it's very, it's subtle and it's complicated. And so it's, first of all, we, we tend to make mistakes when we frame. We'll say things like, you know, the problem is, Ranjit, we don't, the problem is we don't have enough admin support in our sales department. So if you think about it, I said the problem is this, but I haven't really described a problem. What I've really described is a solution because the only answer to we don't have enough admin support is getting more admin support. Mm. So the problem is actually a solution, but we're being very clever. It's masquerading. It's in, it's in the clothing of a problem, but it's not really. And so um, what we want to do is frame a problem in a way that opens up avenues of exploration and questioning. When you say the problem is we don't have enough admin support or we don't have enough machines or we don't have enough people in the, you know, in the sales force, what we're doing is forcing you into an intellectual cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. What we want instead is something that opens up opportunities for questioning. So for example, instead of saying the problem is we don't have enough admin support, what we could say is the problem is our salespeople spend seven hours a week doing low value admin tasks. Oh, okay, well then, we could hire more admin support. Maybe we could get rid of some of those tasks. Maybe we could simplify them. Maybe we could automate them. That's four opportunities right there that we haven't even considered, which we couldn't if we said the problem is we don't have admin support. And I heard um, a client of mine said, you know, the problem is I don't have a sales manager I can trust. Well, first of all, this runs into our second problem with framing, which is vague ambiguities. What does that mean, a sales manager I can trust? Does that mean someone you would trust to uh, 
pick up your daughter from daycare? Does it mean someone you're trusting not to embezzle money from yeah. the company coffers? Does it mean someone, a salesperson who understands the constraints of our, your, your product development team and doesn't, or, or your, your, uh, your um, logistics team, so they don't promise delivery in an unreasonable time frame? Does it mean someone who is able to, who doesn't violate pricing guidelines? We don't give discounts, you know, uh, more than 15% under or, for orders that are smaller than X number of, of dollars, something like that. So one, I don't know what it means. And two, the only alternative again is to have a sales manager that you trust, whatever trust means. Mm. And so what would happen if we said, you know, the problem is my sales manager is never uh, uh, offers discounts that we, that uh, from a corporate level, we can't support. Okay, well, one, one thing we could do is ensure that any order that the sales manager submits has to get approval from the CFO or the CEO or whoever. Or maybe we send out before the sales manager goes out, we give, we give her a sheet that says, here is the price breakdown and here's the, here's the discounts that you're allowed to offer, things like that. So there are ways to handle it without saying something silly like, I don't have a sales manager I can trust. Mm. Another issue with framing, sorry to- uh, no, 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 no. Another issue is I think that there are, um, we have a tendency, we don't realize the power of subtleties in language. So what I mean by that is in the United States, we in, in President Nixon in the 1970s declared a war on drugs. Okay, because there were, there were heroin, uh, cocaine, pot, you name it. So it was a war on drugs and that led to increased militarization. It's a war, right? I know what wars look like. Soldiers, tanks, guns, barbed wire, uh, military spending. Three years ago, Donald Trump declared a public health emergency for our opioid crisis. Now think about it, it's essentially the same thing. It doesn't matter what the drug is. And we've got people who are addicted, whose lives are being destroyed and who are becoming toxic to their community. Except when you say public health emergency, what do you start thinking of? Hospitals, counselors, treatment, support, um, medical interventions, totally different framing and it leads you in an entirely different direction. And so the subtleties, the choice of words that you use go a long way towards determining the trajectory of your problem solving initiative. And so I think that it's important when you frame a problem to frame it in two or three or four different ways to see where it leads you because it's going to take you to a different place. And I'm not here to say this is the right direction or this is the right direction, but rather that we should consider the fact that the, the terms we use will dramatically impact the kind of solutions we come up with. Yeah, and I think, I think to add to that, a couple things that you talked about in regards to what are inhibitors when framing the problem correctly, which I'd like to call out, I, which is super valid, is one, time pressure. People are looking for quick fixes, solutions. We live in a culture, as you pointed out, where we're raised in school to shoot up our hands as soon as a, a, a question's asked. And yeah. if you're not first in best dressed, you're kind of dumb, right? So I think there's that culture of leaning in, being quick, being in sales. It's really difficult. We, we actually had a, a listening expert on uh, prior to you a few days ago. And what I find really difficult is 
I'm always in sales trying to control the frame. And the frame may not necessarily be correct, but I'm trying to manage my agenda yeah. and, and control the frame, if I'm being quite honest. And I think in an organization where we all have agendas, we jump to conclusions that support that agenda, right? And it may not be the right answer. It's a, it is exactly right. You know, you... Um... I always like bringing this stuff back to physical fitness because like you, I'm a, a former competitive runner. You're actually still competitive. Right. But then I'm older than you. But, um, you know, I think about, uh, imagine if your running isn't going well, you've done some races and you're not, you're not doing particularly well. You could say, you know, the problem is that you're, you are overtrained. Okay. That of course, that of course begs the, is implies that the problem is that you've been training too much. But what would happen if we change the framing of that to say something like the problem is um, uh, the you and your coach are not uh, need to meet more to better understand what, where your physical uh, where you are physically in your training cycle. If you're overtrained, the answer is cut back on your running or stop running for a couple of weeks and recover. If the if the way we frame it. The subject now is not you, but rather the coaching relationship. We can say uh, the problem is the coaching relationship isn't, it maybe isn't bringing you to optimal performance. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that I need to talk to my coach more often? Does it mean that my coach needs to see me more? Does it need, mean that I need to send more information, more data, more, more uh, results and reports to the coach? I don't know, but I do know that it changes what I'm going to do by shifting the frame from you to the relationship or to the coach. That's another clip. Uh, I actually said that to a, a, a triathlete friend of mine that I was overtrained. And she said, you're not overtrained, you're underrested. There you go. Okay. I mean, that, I'm stealing that, by the way. So thank you very much. But that's no, exactly right. It's, it's true. Perfect, right? The focus, are we focusing on the training or the recovery? Because maybe you're, maybe all your training is exactly right, but not for the amount of recovery you're giving yourself. Yeah. I'm totally stealing that. Yeah, you could you could take that, Dan, because I'm stealing your cognitive gym. So there you go. We we could trade on that. So so let's Excellent. lead into the third principle: thinking backwards. So the idea between between behind thinking backwards is that we have a tendency as human beings to get caught up in symptoms. We see symptoms, and we assume, and we look at that as the problem when it really isn't. The symptoms are the, the top of the iceberg that we can see above the water. The problems, the root causes are down below. And so what we want to do is get people to start thinking backwards. So if you look at a problem in front of us or the symptom in front of us, what we want to do is go back in time to say, how did we get here? So we're moving chronologically backwards, or if you want to go back to the iceberg, we're looking below the water. And people, so we want to say, okay, here's this problem or here's the symptom, what, how can we categorize it? And so we use what's called a fishbone diagram or what uh, it was developed by a guy named Kaoru Ishikawa, who is a professor of engineering at Tokyo University back in Japan. He died uh, a few decades ago. So it's called an Ishikawa diagram or a fishbone diagram. And what, what it does is allow you to group the causal factors without yet determining what is the cause, but just sort of as a brainstorming tool to say, okay, let's take a look at the elements that might lead to this problem. We want to go to, to the visible problem. So if we go back to you being either underrested or overtrained, we can look at nutrition. What's happening in your diet? We can look at the breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
We can look at the timing of it. We could look at the caloric content. We can look at the nutritional, in terms of vitamins and minerals, nutritional value of what you're eating. So there's the food intake. We can look at the training you're doing. Uh, we can look at the, the amount of, uh, of lactate threshold training, anaerobic training and aerobic training. We can look at amount of hills, for example. We can look at cross training if you're doing it or not. Then we can also look at the resting. Well, let's take a look at the rest. What kind of rest are you doing? How much rest are you doing? We can look at the environment. Um, is it hotter or colder, right? You, the training you do has to be different in the middle of the summer than in the winter because there's a much greater burden on your body to maintain homeostasis during the summer when it's 104 degrees or you know, 35 degrees than when it's, when it's more temperate and 11 degrees. So that's an example of how we would take this notion of um, looking behind the symptom of your, your, your times are not what they're supposed to be or what you want them to be. And we can start looking at the, at the categories. If it was me being able to, to make a, uh, a steak, for example, to barbecue a steak, we're in Australia, let's talk about barbecuing. How do I make a steak that tastes better? Well, let's look at the equipment. Am I using coal or coals or gas? Am I, how long am I leaving it on the grill? So what's the technique? What kind of grill do I have? What kind of material am I working with? What kind of steak? Is it prime? Is it grade A? Is it grade B? And so on. And so what we'd want, and we, let's take a look at the environment. Does it come out differently on hot days versus cold days? And how about the technique? How often do I flip the steak? How long do I leave it on one side versus the other? How long do I let it rest after taking it off the grill? So we're not yet looking for answers. What we're trying to do is surface all of the possible factors that are leading to this, this symptom that we see of a steak that's too tough or too dry. We're leading to someone who's running uh, 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 five minutes slower in a marathon or 10 minutes slower in a marathon than you expect to be running. And so this is, once again, we're not rushing to a conclusion yet. We're still just trying to understand the situation that we're in and why it's coming up. Excellent. And how then do the five whys come into this? And for those of us that don't come from lean methodology, can you talk a little bit about what that actually is? Sure. If you do any sort of Googling on five whys or lean, you're going to run into an example of a machine that breaks down. Um, and the idea is that we can ask, why did the breakdown? Well, the fuse blew. Okay. I could, I could change the fuse. That's easy enough. It doesn't take that much time, but the odds are excellent. If it blew once, it's going to blow again. So why did the fuse blow? Well, because there was an overload. Okay. Why was there an overload? Well, because there wasn't enough lubrication in the system. Okay. I could add lubricant, but why isn't there enough lubricant? We set up this machine that's supposed to work this way. Well, because the pump was breaking down. Well, why was the pump breaking down? Because there's, there's uh, cut chips from the cutting die that's ending up in there and destroying the pump. Okay, so I need to filter the chips out. That will make sure the pump still works, which makes more enough, enough lubrication, which, may, which will make sure that then there won't be an overload, which means the fuse will last. So what we're trying to do is ask why multiple times. Now, it may not require five whys, maybe it'll only require three whys, or maybe it'll be 11 whys. The idea is that we don't wanna take the first answer and the simplest answer, because most likely there are factors that we have not yet identified, causes the root, true root cause behind it. So if we were to say, let's go back to you and running, you're underrested. Okay, why am I underrested? Because I didn't sleep well, or I'm not sleeping enough. Okay, I could say, hey, RJ, go and, 
go rest some more. Well, why aren't you resting more? Well, because my family is sick. That's oh, right. Okay, well, why is your family sick? Well, because my kids are going out with a lot of other kids and they tend not to wash their hands a whole lot. And so they're playing and they're wiping they're their gross. hands and their faces. It's gross. gross. And they get sick and everyone knows when your kids get sick, it's only a matter of time until you get it. Okay, so instead of saying you should sleep a little bit more, what we should say is if we can keep your kids from getting sick, mm. That will mean that they'll be healthier, which means then you can sleep more. So it's, it's in, and in this case, what we're, we're, our root cause, is, and of course I'm making all this up, but the root cause is that the kids don't have really good hygiene. It could be all kinds of other stuff, right? <laughs> well, you can't but, solve that problem, Dan. Yeah, good luck with that one. Fair enough. <laughs> Touche. Right. I can't help you with that one. Uh, but you get the idea that there, there are most likely there are problems going on that um, that we are, we have to address the root cause to understand really what's happening. There was one company I worked with where um, they were having problems meeting the the shipping demands for Amazon, and so they said, "Well, the reason we have to, in order to be able to ship faster for Amazon, what we need to do is hire more people in the warehouse because they just don't have enough time to pick, pack, and ship the boxes." Well, why don't they have enough time? Well, because among other things, the order to start picking, packing and shipping doesn't come until usually one or two o'clock. Oh, well, why is that happening? Well, because the, uh, the EDI system keeps breaking down. Well, why is that? Well, because orders from Amazon will go on to back order and our system's not set up for that. Well, why is that? Because every other customer wants a back order, but Amazon doesn't. Oh. Well, are we allowed to just cancel the order if it's not a back order? Yep, Amazon says yes. Terrific. Get rid of that. Now all of a sudden the order flows through instead of it coming to the warehouse at one o'clock, it comes in at, in the afternoon, it comes in at eight in the morning. And now it's easy to, you've got extra four hours or five hours to do the picking, packing and shipping. So things like that where the easy answer, jumping to conclusions is we need more people because we don't have enough time. It's better to understand why we don't have enough time. On that, Dan, are there signs that we can look out for that we're jumping to conclusions, whether it be personal or business? Like, how do we know? Yeah, so you never know for sure. But I think in the organizational or corporate world, I think there are a few real giveaways. The first is reorganization. I, I, use, I spent 12 or 13 years in the business world. I think I survived four, maybe it was five reorganizations, and not a single one of them worked. And generally speaking, it's because the customer doesn't care how you're organized. Doesn't matter. You could organize vertically in, in functional silos, right. go horizontally by value streams, you could have a matrix organization. They all have pros, they all have cons. But if you go to reorganization without understanding what the problems are, that's usually a sign that you are going down the wrong road. You've jumped to a conclusion. The second is a willingness to spend money without really understanding why. So we're going to hire more people. We're going to give bigger bonuses. We're going to change the commission structure. We're going to invest in newer facilities, fancier break rooms, whatever it is. Spending money is usually a big mistake. It's better to put creativity before capital. Sometimes you have to spend money, but usually companies are just too quick to throw dollars at it. And then the last one, and I think especially now is most prevalent, is a leap to technology. Um, in fact, my book started with the genesis of it was a friend of mine who was telling a story about a client of his that wanted an iPhone app. 
And he said, why do you need an iPhone app? He says, well, I built my company by cobbling together these smaller smaller firms. Now we're national. And our, the IT systems don't talk to each other. It's really clunky to pass uh, one a customer from the Northeast to the Southwest. And he said, okay, well, let me just talk to people. And the, the president said, no, no, you don't need to talk to people. I just need an iPhone app because everyone's got an iPhone app. It's going to make life easier. And he's right. It would make life easier. But when my friend who runs a software development company talked to people, they said, yeah, the software stinks. It's a pain in the butt. But I tell you what, we're salespeople. We'll use passenger pigeons and fax machines if we need to. The problem is that if I hand off a customer from the Northeast to the Southwest in the United States, I don't get a commission. So why are you going to bother passing it off? And my, my friend goes back to the president and says, you don't have a software problem. You have a commission problem. So when you see companies saying, oh, we have to invest in Oracle, we need a new accounting system, we need a SAP, we need an iPhone app, you may need it, but there's an excellent chance that what you're trying to do is paper over fundamental problems that you don't understand with technology. And that's going to give you a faster, more expensive, broken system. Yeah, it... Um... Sounds really true because I mean, you're using two illustrated examples that I can relate to when I'm in logistics and I'm in sales as well. And those examples really hit home. So you talked about in a previous conversation on, on a different podcast about how the cost of getting it wrong impacts staffs in staff in terms of it's generally not the managers that get sacked or fired. It's the people on the ground that are really impacted uh, from the bad decisions. And there was a bit of a philosophical discussion there around, well, maybe firms should really look at the um, the kind of looking at problems effectively and getting this whole framing piece correctly is a means to not get it wrong, where they'll have to then get rid of people and and obviously do things that are uh, are not great for culture. So can you talk a little bit about that? You know, um my thinking has been deeply influenced by Toyota, which is the, uh, the really where Lean was created. Uh, Toyota started it in 1940, I think it was 1947 or 1948, um, because they had to lay off some employees. And they swore they would never do that again. And in fact, since 1948, they have never laid off an employee. And only two years since then have they actually lost money. Toyota makes cars, but you could argue that irrespective of what they made, whether it was cars or boats or computer mice, that they, what they really do is develop people, they make people who make cars or computer mice or whatever, and that they are better at problem solving than any company that I know. The result of all that problem solving is that they have a war chest that allows them to sustain uh, bad years without laying people off. In 2008, for your listeners that are old enough to remember, the world had this global, there was a global financial crisis, which really hit the United States hard. I'm not sure how bad it was down in Australia, but it was just horrible here. Toyota had just opened up a plant to make um, full-size pickup trucks. They had never been in that, uh, that, that uh, business. They always made smaller pickup trucks. And that's dominated by Ford and Chevy here in the US. And they, just when they opened up this plant in Texas, the, the, the auto market just blew up because of the finan global financial crisis. And they didn't lay anyone off. Instead, they kept the plant running for six months. And all they did 
they people were paid 100% of their wages. They made people come in every single day, and they were just trained on problem solving in the Toyota production system. You may remember, actually, um, it was, I think, what, about seven or eight years ago, Toyota, maybe a little bit more, Toyota closed down, along with all the other companies, uh, closed its operations in Australia. Um, because you know, everyone left because it's just too small a market to support all the manufacturing. You may not know this, but Toyota gave their employees three years notice, three years notice saying, we are going to be closing the plant in three years. And anyone who wants training in anything, if you want to become a nurse, if you want to become a poet, if you want to become a, uh, I don't know, a, a software engineer, we will pay, we will pay for your schooling over the next three years. Because when we close the plant, we want to be sure that you guys have a place to go. To That's work. really interesting because people tend to look at companies that are driven by lean is people cutting, right? There's this, there's this view that, oh my God, they're all about process and getting rid of the people and putting in the robots. I had no idea that they took this kind of corporate responsibility so seriously. They are fanatical about it. They're very slow to hire because when they make a commitment to an employee, they're going to live up to it. Now, some people might call that paternalistic, but I would say that if you go back to our Toyota truck factory in the United States, they had six or eight months later, they had employees that were so much better than they were on day one in terms of skills, in terms of ability, in terms of problem solving, and fanatically, fanatically loyal to the company in a way that the workers at Ford weren't because the Ford workers got furloughed and maybe they got 50% pay or 30% pay or 80, whatever it is. These guys at Toyota were treated as, you know, members of the family in a way. And so to me, this notion of problem solving, when you start, when you start jumping to conclusions and making bad decisions, you end up wasting a lot of money. And when you waste money, inevitably it leads to, well, we have to lay off 10% of the workforce or 5% or whatever the number is. And if we can stop that sort of waste of the reorganizations and the buying software that we then don't use or build a new plant that we don't need or buy a, or rent a bigger warehouse than the one that we really should be using. If we can save that kind of money, that means that we don't have to think about taking it out of the hides of our employees. Have you seen, just to digress, I guess, on the back of that, have you seen a shift in companies looking to employ methodologies like this during COVID in an attempt to not sack people? Like, have you seen companies become more uh, prone to finding ways to optimize their processes? That's a really interesting question. What I've seen is that companies that, that understand and appreciate value lean thinking they've doubled down on it during COVID because of the pressures. The companies that don't understand it, what they've tried to do is figure out ways to cut costs, which, are, which is a different mindset. One is figuring out how to do things better. The other is cutting costs, which usually means cutting benefits, cutting hours, cutting this, cutting that. And it's, without, and it's a very, very different, you're coming at it from a different approach. That, uh, that, that, that's super interesting because even myself, being in the business community, but not operational in a sense. I've always looked at lean and somehow married it to cost cutting. But you're actually saying that you're, you're running a lean system, 
that there that then creates more value for employees as well as customers, not just the customers in a cheaper product. Yes. And you know, boy, there's so many examples that I could talk about this. And in fact, my second book, Building the Fit Organization, has a whole section on this idea of increasing value. But here's a perfect one of my favorite examples. There's a um uh, general uh, GE Healthcare makes these MRI machines and CAT scanners. Let me think CAT scanners. CAT scanners, if you've ever seen them, are, uh, you know, they're these big long tubes and you put people in there and they make a lot of noise and whatnot. Um, and GE Healthcare was very proud because they came out with this great one for kids. Um, and the designer, they installed one in a hospital and the designers went to the hospital to see its maiden voyage. And they were really excited and they saw this kid coming, being taken in again in the hospital into the room and the kid is scared, starts crying. You can't do a CAT scan if the kids are, are running around. And so they actually had to sedate the kid. And it turns out that they said that CAT scan, when you in a, in a pediatric hospital, they sedate something like 60 or 70% of the kids to do scans, which is, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world, but if you can avoid sedating someone, that's better. The fewer things you do to a human being, the likelier, better, more likely it is you're going to have a good outcome. And this guy who was a, the lead developer and designer said, oh, my God, I felt, I felt like I was a, a, an accomplished child abuse. And so he went back and he said, what can I do to stop the kids from being scared? And if, actually, if you go to the GE Healthcare website, you can find these pictures of he, he decided that he made the entire suite sort of, let's say, a, an undersea um, sunken, a sunken ship, treasure, treasure ship. So there's paintings of ships and, and, and chests of gold and fish and sharks and all this stuff going around. And so it looks like the kids are going into a sunken ship. And they have one where it looks like they're going into a, an, uh, a caravan for camping. And they have one where it looks like they're going into a spaceship and they're going to be out in the, with the planets. And the kids are like, oh, this is really cool. And then the nurses say, hey, listen, it's just very important when you're under, underwater, you have to be very still. And the kids are like, okay, fine, no problem. So what they could have done was just leave it as is. But instead, they spent the time to make a whole suite that, is, that tricks the children, which lowers the costs for the hospital because now they don't have to deal with, with, with sedation. They don't have to deal with kids recovering, you know, waking up from sedation. The kids are happier. The nurses are happier. The doctors are happier. Everyone is happier. All they've done is increase value and they made their product more sellable relative to the Siemens and Philips and uh, Toshiba units. Uh, I think eventually they started doing the same thing, but this is an example of how you can increase the value and increase revenue and increase profits without cutting costs. In fact, you could argue they probably spent a little more money because now you have to do paint, <laughs> fancy paint jobs or decaling on these things. But in the meantime, it made a better product. And I can go on and on about this sort of thing that creates more value for customers without cutting anything. Yeah, you're the third person on our show. And I have to say, I've been surprised to bring up this um, theme of uh, psychological safety. I've had different people on this show mention that topic in different contexts, but let's talk about it in the context of how psychological safety is required in a firm for us as an individual to stop and question things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, 
the woman who's really the, uh, I don't know if she's the pioneer, but she's certainly one of the brightest lights in this area is a woman named Amy Edmondson. She's a professor at Harvard Business School. And so she, there's actually a TED talk, a TEDx talk, it's about 10 or 12 minutes, something like that. Um, and she talks about the, how, if we don't feel safe, I'll talk about safety in a minute. It impedes our ability to be creative, to solve problems, to do good work, our best work. And so we end up getting caught into traps. We can't escape any sort of mental ruts we're in. And when she, when she talks about safety, she's talking about the freedom to make mistakes and not get yelled at, not get fired, not have a bad performance evaluation. And even aside from the official corporate effect, there's the idea of just criticism or ridicule, right? If you don't want to be laughed at, for making a mistake. You don't want to be criticized. You don't want to be teased for having lost money uh, or for, for making a bad decision. And so what we want to do is create an environment in which people feel comfortable with admitting that they don't know or admitting that they make a mistake. You know, I, <laughs> I single-handedly sank for a year the number one selling shoe at ASICS when I was there years ago. Uh, I was the Gel 100 series. And everyone who inherit, you know, took my position, who had my position before me and after me, this was literally 30% of the company's revenues. And there were some design trends that I thought were really important for us to go after and had to do with the kind of stripes we were using and whatnot for the logo. And hats off to ASICs. They made me feel comfortable enough to say, I don't know if this is the right decision, but I'm going to give it a shot. And it turned out badly. <laughs> yeah, the market hated it. All my research notwithstanding, the market hated it, it was rejected, and we had to close the shoes out. But I had the flexibility, the license, the latitude, the comfort to experiment with this kind of thing, recognizing that, it, you know, in this case, it happened to be costly. But you see, when you see people afraid to, who don't feel safe, they are afraid to consider alternatives. There's a wonderful hospital, a trauma center up in Toronto, Canada, that uh, trauma center doctors, of course, are under an awful lot of pressure, and they don't want to get the diagnosis wrong because if they do, someone could die. This isn't a matter of you coming in with a cold or a sprained ankle. You know, it's a trauma center. Someone's just been airlifted in after, from a car wreck. They actually have a doctor on staff in the trauma center whose job is not to take care of patients directly but to watch the other doctors taking care of the patients, to say, hey, are you jumping to conclusion here? Why do you think that might be what's going on? I know you're saying that it's a, this could be an allergic, uh, allergic reaction, but isn't it more likely it's a broken bone or vi vi vice versa? Instead of it being due to internal bleeding, maybe it's an, an allergic reaction. So what they're doing is creating a safe, by giving this person this job, he has, he's safe to be able to, suggest things and come up with 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 uh, with treatments and diagnoses that he doesn't have to worry about being wrong. Um, you can see this in companies that will often do um, they have the devil's an assigned devil's advocate. You've been in plenty of meetings where you're trying to make a decision. And a lot of companies now will say, all right, RJ, your job is to disagree with whatever we come up with and point out all the reasons why it's going to fail or likely to fail or could fail. So now I'm giving you safety to, to 
to explore that little nagging question of doubt of maybe this isn't the right thing to do. Because otherwise, you might not feel safe enough to raise your hand when the CEO or the VP of sales is in the room saying, I think we should do this. Who, who especially among younger employees, is going to feel comfortable enough to say, excuse me, ma'am, I, I, I don't think that's the right answer. I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. Too risky. Mm, yeah. And you know what? Like, I'm totally guilty in my organization being in sales and putting pressure and applying pressure to people around me because I, you know, I could have a wonderful, meaningful conversation like this and reflect upon it. And then, you know, come 9 a.m., I become a different beast, right? Because I get pulled into the inertia of what I'm yeah. doing. So it's really, really important to, to reflect on it. And I'll, I'll pivot the conversation to um, decision making. So, you know, in business and other arenas, they, the person that uses gut instinct and gets it right tends to be heralded, heralded right? Is kind of this um, oracle and, and, and knower of all things. And we aren't really taught how to make decisions. And I was reflecting upon the conversation you were having on a different podcast. Like, do, do some people, are they some people better decision makers or do certain people have better decision-making skills within domains that they know. What's your view on this piece on decision-making? And you talked about your experience in, I think, your MBA course where you were doing decision-making trees and it all came down to MPVs. And I think that was super interesting as well. Can we talk a little bit about how your view on maybe how undercooked we are in terms of this skill? You know, I, I think that undercooked is a really nice way of putting it uh, because we're not trained in this, not in, at least in the United States, not in grade school, not in high school, not in college, not in university, not in an MBA program. The approach to, to problem solving or decision-making is this very quantitative and frankly uh, asinine approach to these decision trees. I'm going to map out a tree and I'm going to arbitrarily assign percentage. Or it's the other way. It's all gut instinct, right? right? Or yeah, you know, just go with your experience. Except that, you know, we have so many cognitive biases. I mean, the list, just Google it, just look for a list of cognitive biases. There's probably a hundred and that's only, and that's probably incomplete. Things that will lead us astray, even though we think that we must be making a good decision that our gut is telling us the right thing because of pattern recognition and confirmation bias and recency bias and all of these other things that will lead us to making poor decisions. And I think that we need to really consider how we develop the problem solving skills and the decision making skills because it is a skill. Yeah, there's art, but there's also skill to it. And you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because, because I don't know if anyone's going to read a 300-page book on decision-making. And I think what I wanted to do was give people a simple process that they could really remember easily or download the, uh, the little infographic to just remind themselves to go slow before they make a decision, to take two steps back before they take one step forward. Mm. Because... That's, I think, the most important thing. Our, most of us, the vast majority of your listeners, are not actually emergency room trauma doctors. 
which means that they don't really have to make a decision within five seconds. There's usually at least a couple of hours, if not a couple of days or a couple of weeks, where they can really take the time to think through this. Um, almost never is a life and death decision. And yet we are accustomed to thinking, I've got to make this decision quickly. And as a result, it leads us astray because we have these, we, either we have these artificial quantitative models that, that, that promise the false hope of, of some sort of scientific accuracy, or alternatively, as you say, it's all, it's all gut feel. Well, I'll just go with my gut. Your gut's gonna be certainly helpful, but we wanna do is make sure is that we're using the gut at the right time and we balance out the gut feel with yeah. a little bit of this going and seeing and framing the problem properly. Yeah. Um, and then by all means say, you know what? I framed the problem and I've gone to see and all this stuff. My gut tells me to do this. Great, wonderful. There's a greater likelihood now that your gut is going to be, is not gonna lead you astray. Yeah, and, and, and you talk about this, which I love, this habit of reflection. How does a, a busy executive do that? Like, like, how would that play out? Like how would, if you were giving an executive some advice on creating space for themselves to reflect, what, what would that be? I'm gonna quote a friend of mine who runs a company in the United States. Every day they have a morning meeting for the whole company that lasts somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes. And they committed to continuous improvement and lean. And so they're discussing improvements and all these other things they're doing. And Paul says, you know, when I started doing this, people said to me, how can you, how can you afford 30 to 60 minutes a day, every single day? Think about that. It's four to five hours, three to five hours a week of non-productive time. There you go. And Paul says, how can I afford not to? So to any executive who's busy, who says, I don't have the time, how can I afford the time to reflect and think about, review my decisions and what I, and, or the decisions that are facing me? I would say, how can you afford not to? Because the delay of an hour or a half a day or a day or even a week is probably going to be less, much less consequential than the cost of making a silly decision. It's Once so again, true. It's clear that sometimes your decisions aren't going to turn out well, but nevertheless, you have. If you don't reflect, you're not going to learn. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting when I see the exec team that I work with or other executives that I hear about. They're always in meetings, and these meetings are about big decisions. But it's like, okay, well, where and when are you actually reflecting upon them? And they're not. What they're doing is. To your earlier point, they're kind of going off this mixed input of qual and quantitative inputs and making decisions, but there probably really isn't that level of reflection that's required. And people are like, I'm too busy for it. So I, I personally block off a day or like a, a period in my calendar where it's blocked off. So nobody could actually lock me in for that period, because if I don't do that, I'll end up filling it up. I'll fill up my week. You know, the military in the US, and I suspect it's true with the Australian military yeah. as well and any, any other one, they have what they call, they've institutionalized what they call the after action review, AAR. Anytime they have some sort of engagement, anytime there's some sort of uh, engagement with an enemy, after it's done, they make the time to have a review and figure out what they did right, what they did wrong, right. where they made mistakes. There's a, uh, there's a, 
a stunt flying team in the United States, the Navy pilots, they're called the Blue Angels, and they're yes. really famous, they yes. travel around the country. And after every performance, they have an after action review or after show review. And they go through literally second by second, because of course, when you're flying that fast, you know, you really do need to look at it second by second. They go through this entire show from preparation to takeoff. They go through it second by second, minute by minute to figure out what went right and what went wrong. And obviously when you're flying wing to wing at, you know, 600 miles an hour, you really better be sure you get it right because someone can get hurt very, very, very badly. And they make time for this because that is the only way they can learn where the mistakes were and how to prevent it the next time. Mm. And okay, the military, the Blue Angels, these are life and literally life and death situations. Whether you're trying to open up, expand a factory or expand a warehouse in, in, in Melbourne may not be as consequential in terms of, in terms of uh, people's lives. But nevertheless, this is important because we're dealing with company resources. The leadership team is the, is the steward and the fiduciary has a fiduciary responsibility for all the stockholders. And even if it's a private company, has responsibility to all the employees and to the community. At the very least, I think they should be taking the time to say, boy, that decision didn't work out well. Or it did work out well. It worked out better than we thought. Why? We, how did we do so good on this one? And how can we do it again next time? Yeah, it's one of the reasons I, I love sales, Dan, is I've contemplated like management roles, but I don't think personally I would fare well without being in control of my time. Like I find in sales, it's much more outbound focused and I have time to go hard and then reflect and, and slow down my pace. And I look at my colleagues that are much more internally focused and they're just flat out all the time. And for me, that level of pressure versus the pressure of bringing in revenue, it's too much for me. I, I would really struggle with that. You know, it's, it's something that's prevented me from really looking to get into corporate per se. I, I much prefer this kind yeah. of smaller business orientation. So let's talk about people that are in companies that want to implement your methodology, how can they start even on a small scale then? Well, I think that the, the nice thing about this four-step framework is that it can really be done at any level. Um, anytime there is a decision that you're trying to make where it would be easy to jump to a conclusion. So let's say you're in the office and you find that it's a pain in the butt that sometimes, the, this is pre-COVID when people were actually in offices, the printer runs out of toner. And you don't realize this until after you start the print job. So the easy thing would be to say, let me just put in a new toner cartridge. Okay, well, maybe the answer is to leave a toner cartridge on top of the printer. I don't know. This is maybe a true story for me, by the way, Dan. This is a true story. So keep, keep going. It's actually a true story. Go. So what we could do is start saying, well, my initial reaction is just to change the, what, what I need is a bigger toner cartridge. Okay, that's the easy answer. Instead of 500 pages, I want 5,000 pages, but that's not really gonna fix the problem. How can we fix it with the system that we have? How can we start thinking about it? So that something as simple as that, um, I think is, uh, is, a, is a place where we can, we, we can start. 
Um, and that could be the, you know, the, 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 the temperature in here in, in our office isn't quite the right temperature. It's always too hot or too cold or people are too hot or too cold. Or boy, people are being interrupted all the time. How can I, you know, the answer would, what are, what are the easy ways to solve it? And then let me think through it. Let me, when, what's the, when do these interruptions happen? What kinds of interruptions? Is it email? Is it text messages? Is it phone calls? Is it people dropping by? It's, if you just say interruptions, that doesn't really necessarily solve it. So let's be a little more specific. Let's go through, let's talk to a bunch of people. Let's watch them get interrupted. So we can use it even at a really small local relatively inconsequential level and help make things better. Yeah, that's really, um, really, uh, I was just reflecting on how when I'm around people that are, they don't let me be vague, how frustrated I get. Like, you know what I mean? Because you people have a tendency when, <clears throat> sorry, my flu is coming up, my cold. Uh, when people actually question me on my vague style of communication, I'll get all pissed off, right? And it's actually, no, they're actually doing the right thing by trying to get to the crux of the issue. They're not challenging me, they're challenging my thought process and my opinions, right? Absolutely. And, you know, that's <clears throat> often you in that you make them feel safe enough to actually challenge Yeah. Them. Yeah. Right. It would be very easy for them to just say, I have no idea what he's talking about. I'll just take a guess because if I challenge him, he's going to yell at me. He'll lose his temper, temperature, he'll lose his temper, yeah. whatever. And so there's a perfect example of psychological safety. They feel comfortable saying to you, hey, what the hell are you talking yeah, about? People Who's call me on my shit all the time, Dan, all the time. So awesome. Um, and, you know, you learn from that, of course, but it's really cool that there is that there's a level of comfort that they don't they're not concerned that they're going to make a mistake. Well, Dan, I think we'll wrap it up there. Really want to thank you for your time and was hoping that you can let our audience know where we can actually find your material. So uh, thank you. I mean, this was a wonderful experience for me. Um, there's a bunch of stuff, of course, on my website called uh, markovitzconsulting.com. But uh, in this particular case, I set up a, a, a website for the book itself called theconclusiontrap.com. Uh, although, if I'm not mistaken, if you type in conclusiontrap.com, it will just forward you there. Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of materials that people can download. There are podcasts, there's interviews, there's articles. Uh, there are infographics, there's a workbook, all the stuff is free. Um, and if it can help serve people and support them in becoming better at avoiding the conclusion trap, I would feel like I've done my job. Thank you so much for your time, Dan. It's been a real pleasure. The pleasure is mine. Listen, gets, uh, it's some god awful early hour for you. So uh, I don't know, go for a run or something. <laughs> <laughs> or take care of your kid who's sick. <laughs> yeah.